Welcome to Meditations with Sohar. I am beyond overjoyed to have Dr. Aviva Zornberg here with me today. She is one of the greatest, uh, in my views, living uh, scholars of Torah, and she is a profound synthesizer of not just Jewish tradition, but also philosophical and literary traditions and psychoanalytic traditions. And uh, she's a role model for me as somebody who brings her own personal voice to bear on study in a way that is devotional, but also um, makes use of erudition. So I, I welcome you today, Aviva. Thank you very much, Zohar. You grew up in Scotland, if I'm right? Yes. I'd love to hear how your upbringing there and your journey from there to uh, Israel, how your home environment or your cultural environment there has shaped your perspective in life or in the study of Torah. What do you think that environment has contributed to the way that you look at text? Well, that is a wonderful and complex question. Talking about one's early life is well, it's a subject for, for psychoanalysis, and I'm not going to do that here. Um, so I'll try to stay fairly on our path. I was born in London. My family moved to Glasgow when I was four. And I lived there, Glasgow, Scotland, till I was 18, when I went to study in a seminary for studying Torah, and then in Cambridge. My father was the rabbi. I have a sister. So the four of us were a rabbinical family, an orthodox rabbinical family, in an environment that was quite unorthodox, perhaps you could say traditional. Um, the synagogue where my father worked, and then my father was also the head of the court in Glasgow, of the rabbinical court. So we were a little alien to the environment. One of the most outstanding features of my childhood was the fact that my father, who was a very serious scholar of Judaica and also very well educated um, in Western civilization, uh, he had his education was in Vienna, in Austria before the war, and he took it upon himself to educate my sister and myself privately uh, at home with Jewish texts. That is, there wasn't really a, a satisfactory place to study um, Jewish texts for a young girl. Um, and he was quite uh, ambitious for, for my sister and myself, that we should really be immersed in the sources. Um, and so we used to learn every day, each of us individually with, with my father. And that was an extraordinary experience and a great privilege, I realize more and more as I see how different my Jewish educational background was from most that of most children at that time, unless they were extremely orthodox and they went to yeshiva, which was really for the, for the ultra-orthodox uh, in England. So I had a very privileged background in that way. Uh, with the advantage also of having the sole attention of my father. So there was a lot of emotional satisfaction in learning with him. There was a lot of love of each other and love of the text, the shared text. So that was a very benign way to begin learning. I went to a non-Jewish Scottish school. 
So my life was fairly divided between the Jewish and the non-Jewish parts of my life. When I was 17, I went to study in a seminary in England for intensive Jewish studies for young women. Uh, this was something of an ultra-Orthodox establishment, and it exposed me to that flavor of, of being Jewish, which I actually enjoyed. I enjoyed the depth of the study and the intense religious seriousness of studying uh, in that environment. And also, of course, I enjoyed having a society around me of Jewish, um, intensely involved young women. Um, so that was a very positive experience. My love of learning only increased. And then I got into Cambridge, which was a tremendous, a tremendous achievement somehow coming from the sticks, coming from the far reaches of Scotland. And uh, there, again, uh, I was fairly isolated uh, as an Orthodox Jew and in my interest in learning texts, certainly as a woman. Um, but I loved my English literature studies, and that was what I was doing most of, most of the time. But I also felt that I wanted to maintain my study of Jewish texts and a certain kind of devotional seriousness that I had acquired somehow in, in, in the various experiences I had had so far. And the fact that I was a little isolated only added to the intensity of that preoccupation. That helps me a lot, sort of feel your personality in your book on Moses, your biography of Moses, who um, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, grows up in two households, uh, a, a Jewish one and an Egyptian one. And you um, really zone in on this moment in Moses's biography where God tells him, Lech Red, go down the mountain, don't stay up here, return to your people. And of course, there is something very archetypal about that hero's journey, but now I'm hearing that mosaic story uh, differently when I, when I think of your sort of journey through Torah sources and then to Cambridge as a kind of ascent and descent and maybe lateral movement to find your place amongst the people. <laughs> well, yes, there is something in the analogy, <laughs> although it's very flattering. But no, yes, um, I think there is something about, about being an outsider. You know, I would put it as strongly as that, and of leading a rather isolated existence. Um, and then feeling in some way that my religious life was very bound up with my sensitivities and vulnerability and ways of trying to deal with who I am, which is not exactly like everyone else. So that sense of being different, um, which I, I think analogously, that's exactly Moses' experience, mm. that he doesn't belong to his own people on some level. Of course, the the story of the outsider is a kind of universal one and a powerful one. Is there anything specific to Scotland itself or to the UK itself that you think has informed your orientation beyond just growing up in the sticks or growing up in a rabbinic family um, or sort of being a party to both tradition but also to secularism? Is there something specific about this sort of the poetic uh, or lyrical aspects of Scotland or even the independent and marginal 
aspects of Scotland relative to the rest of the UK or, or to Europe that you think has a kind of cultural nationalism, if you will, that is part of your unconscious? Well, if it was in my unconscious, it's now been, <laughs> it's now been drawn out. Uh, I think there is definitely something in that. We, we grew up on Scottish history and Scottish history vis-a-vis -vis the, um, you know, imperial England. Uh, and so we were always the good guys. You know, we were the, the small nation. I identified mightily with Scottish identity. Um, and I also very much appreciated the fact that in Scotland, there, there is a very special, I think, uh, acknowledgement of the importance of the intellect. Education is very highly valued mm. by Scots as it is among Jews. So that was another commonality. The beauty of Scotland certainly is, uh, that was very acute of you to, <laughs> to pick up on that somewhere as being important. For the last 10, 15, 20 years, I can't remember how long now, we make a point of going back to Scotland in the summer because the beauty is, it's out of this world, literally. <laughs> it's something else, the Celtic dream beauty, shadows and lights and glimmers. <laughs> so learning Torah in that environment with my father, you know, had an added kind of magic to it so that uh, there was a kind of glow I think, about some of the specifics of living in Scotland and growing up in Scotland. To change gears, and I really appreciate that reflection, so one of the things that I admire about your work is the way that you blend uh, so many different kinds of sources. You obviously have a background in rabbinic sources and biblical material, but you quote effortlessly on the same page from Paul Selah and from Levinas, from Lacan, from George Eliot, in a way that's so natural and sort of so flowing, as if there's a kind of grand meta scripture that contains all of those voices. And I've taken personal inspiration from that, and I, I now write a weekly commentary myself, and I've tried to bring the, the material that influences me into conversation with these traditional sources. And there's some precedent for what you do, right? Um, Rav Solveitchik, uh, is 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 happy to quote neo-Kantian philosophy, um, you know, alongside the Zohar, but by and large, um, this sort of movement between the Jewish cultural intellectual world and these other sources has been more antagonistic, more vexed. Uh, Leo Strauss talks about a relationship between Athens and Jerusalem. So I'd love to hear your perspective on kind of what does it mean for you to use sources from both Jewish and non-Jewish tradition? What, do, what is the work that each is doing? Do you think of yourself as primarily an interpreter of Torah who's then using the tools, the sort of more universal or, or Western tools to, to help you elucidate that? Or are you a kind of phenomenologist or anthropologist and Torah is is helping you uncover something human broadly that that transcends the Jewish and the Jewish is sort of one one data point in this larger excursus. And I know I'm giving you a ton to think about, but while I'm at it, um, how do you think about the sort of ancient modern divide? Do you, do you think about it as a story of continuity? You see yourself as part of a chain of tradition with earlier sources, or is there something modern about what you're doing? modernist about what you're doing, you know, the collage ideal that we get from from T.S. Eliot or, and Ezra Pound. And so um, as much as you are 
um, using traditional sources, you're inevitably in discontinuity with them because of the way that you're kind of using them and relating to them. Maybe I'll start with the last question about ancient and modern. I think my approach has changed over the years. Around 1980, I really began to teach Jewish material in in an evening class in, in Jerusalem. And I taught for many years before I wrote my first book. My first book was in 1995. At the beginning, I thought of myself as basically teaching the Jewish materials, the Jewish text, the portion of the week was my official topic. The Torah is divided up into sections, and every week there's the next section. And I would take that limited text and I would plow it for meanings that would in some way come together and and come together with associations I would have from, from external literature, from other literatures. So I regarded the other literatures as, as somewhat illustrative. They were there to illustrate my concerns with the, with the biblical text and its commentaries, its many commentaries. Over the years, I gradually became aware that the asymmetry was disappearing and that in some way the literary and later psychoanalytic texts that I was bringing in were in a conversation with the biblical text. They weren't there just to illustrate certain points, to, to evocatively convey certain points, but they were there actually in some way to modify, moderate, sharpen, somewhere point out, point up, sometimes the beauty and sometimes the anguish that's involved in the biblical texts and in the rabbinic texts that I used by way of commentary. These are the commentary texts on the on the biblical text, which are, for, for me, are extremely vivid. Every, every word somehow plays on my nerves. And on that basis, I found rich ground for thinking of those texts in something of a modern, let's say, anguished way, (laughs) rather than taking them simply as material for intellectual analysis, but somewhere understanding now the Midrashic texts, particularly the commentary texts on the Bible, understanding them as addressing the human condition and the anxiety and instability of the human tradition uh, with the religious hope that is involved also in the thinking of the rabbis. So it's a kind of full acknowledgement of the problems and the pain and the instability and the insecurity that's involved in, in human life. And then trying to find a place of peace in among all that, trying to find some kind of resolution without ever really resolving the issues. The idea is not to achieve a happy ending. And gradually that became more and more my my quest to find something that's serious, a way of writing and a way of teaching that used these materials to address seriously the complexity of our condition. Wonderful. So it sounds like all traditions, be they Jewish or not Jewish, ancient or modern, appreciate at their best the anguish of being human, 
the finitude of our condition, but perhaps what makes Judaism or your your read of Judaism differentiated from that baseline finitude is that it offers some kind of consolation or way of contending with that finitude in a way that alchemizes it into something else. I don't know if you would call that the infinite or the eternal, as some classical theologians do, but something like the heavenly, some respite from just the earthly condition. I think of existentialism as an interesting case study for this, right? So amongst the existentialists, we have we have Sartre and we have Camus um, and we have Beckett, let's say. Maybe those are slightly different cases, um, who seem to really have a, an inkling for the despairing aspect of life. Um, and then you have religious existentialists. Uh, I think of Buber, I think of Marcel, who perhaps are less pessimistic simply because um, even if the human being is finite, even if there's a tragic sense of life, to use Unamuno's phrase, there is some kind of way out. The Kierkegaardian leap into faith or into the absurd does save us from just this baseline finitude. So would you identify as a religious existentialist? Do you think it's helpful to make a distinction there between sort of just anguish and then anguish plus something else that's supplied by religion? I hesitate to assume the role that that you have just suggested for me. I don't think I'm a religious existentialist. I think perhaps again, at one time in the past, I used to think of myself a little more like that. And I used to think of somewhere of the resolutions to to the anguish. Um, As time has gone on, and I don't know what is responsible for this, there are a number of possibilities. Um, I no longer see it as my task to resolve all the problems that are raised. Uh, I've become very involved in trauma studies and resolving trauma from a psychoanalytic point of view, at any rate, is, is a very fraught issue, right? It's, it's, it's almost impossible. The idea would be in some way really to feel the trauma, to become aware of it, and somehow to deepen, to allow it to act as, an, as a deepening of one's life. And that's where the religious dimension comes in for me. Mm. It's a kind of very personal entry into um, the fullness of the trauma, which has been to some extent denied in the past, and acknowledging it and looking for God in it, rather than looking at God shining a beam from elsewhere, but looking within it for signs of God, rumors, rumors of angels, as uh, Peter Berger uh, called it, you know, somewhere, some, some stirring that allows one from the center of one's human life to achieve a sense of a place at home when one is not at home, you know, feeling of, of displacement and finding a place within the displacement with the sense that this allows one to relate to other people relating to other people on the basis of a similar, one sees that others also suffer in the same way. Um, And there's a certain empathy and sympathy that can then grow on the basis of a likeness in unease. 
Levinas has a line somewhere, I, I believe, that uh, suffering is meaningless until it is redeemed in compassion. Human connection is the only way to vindicate the unsalvageable. So there's something in what you said that made me think of this universal problem uh, articulated by Aristotle, but, no, but not only. Basically, it's a fundamental philosophical and religious problem, which is what is the good life? And what I heard in your telling, and I think it's um, it's a fascinating offering and one that is not mainstream, in my opinion, in my anecdotal lived experience, uh, certainly not in, in the Jewish or, or the religious world, is that being able to acknowledge your trauma is the first step to a good life, that actually um, being able to just say life is fragile and I have my difficulties that that unbenumbs one and so the the good life has to be one that's unbenumbed and so if you deny suffering or you try to sweep it under the carpet then you're not living the good life would you accept that formulation or how would you push back on that uh, i'll quote kafka one of my favorite quotes from kafka where he says why do we read books at all a book is an axe for the frozen sea within us Otherwise, why read at all? That's not a direct quote, the last sentence. But in other words, if a book doesn't do that for you, kind of melt the ice, hack at the ice of defenses, of the defenses, of the internal defenses, and allow one to feel, to feel one's own situation in all its complexity and the situation of others, that the, the movement towards empathy, or as you call it, compassion, which is very important. So I think Kafka is saying something there that's a kind of violence about it, which is not exactly my, my tone, but um, he is saying something very important. Uh, where I would push back would be on the idea of the good life. Aristotle's view in general, I feel that we have gone rather beyond his emphasis somewhere on the reign of consciousness that we can always organize for ourselves on an individual and on a social level, a good life. Uh, Jonathan Lear, um, whose work I admire very much, um, discusses Aristotle in this vein and goes on to talk about the, the importance of irony. As soon as irony plays a role in one's thinking, however one defines it, uh, as soon as that happens, it's almost hard to say with a straight face, to talk about the good life. It's good, you know, and then there are the shadows and the glimmers and the, the ways in which it won't sit still to be held in that way. Sure. I took a class in college just on irony, and I, I read the history of the theory on irony, and I was very uh, moved by it, and I find a lot of appeal in irony, and I, I kind of accept the postmodern wager that the structure of language or communication or identity, et cetera, um, is inherently ironic. That is, there's always gonna be a gap between what we intend and what we, the outcome of our effect. Um, even Quintilian, I think he defined irony as saying one thing and meaning another. Quintilian was was an old writer, so for him that was a deliberate. You, you're intentional. I think where sort of Schlegel or Derrida 
would come in on that is they would say, whether you intend it or not, you can't but say something else. I certainly resonate with this irony as um, a mood of our age. And yet, um, when I think of you, uh, I think of a serious person. You just used the word trauma, which has a certain heaviness of, and sincerity about it. When I think of irony in, in popular culture, I think of hipsters uh, consuming, you know, bad art to sort of perform their disaffectedness. Um, there's a kind of like coolness to irony, at least in America, especially on college campuses. That's very far from this this Kafkaesque image of taking an axe to the frozen sea. It's, in a sense, it's the exact opposite. It's a, a complete checking out from anything real or, or committed. There's a, a few questions, I think, in, in, in what I'm asking about, which is maybe the ironic thing about you, if I can say so, is that you don't strike me as an ironic person. You strike me as a deeply sincere, deeply committed person. And of course, I, I know you from your writing, not, not in, in person. But maybe you have something to say about sort of irony and sincerity, right? That was a Lionel Trilling book as well. And, and why it is that in the world of committed, observant Judaism, there tends to be an allergy, I think, um, to, to irony, whereas in the world of sort of postmodern liberalism, irony seems to be so deified, and yet it doesn't seem to bring this acceptance of trauma. It seems to be a kind of making light of everything. Irony has been defined in many ways. Jonathan Lear speaks a great deal about irony as part of a world of aspiration. Aspiration has about it a kind of ironic perspective on what one thinks one has achieved. Irony becomes a form of humility. His example is, I think I'm a good teacher. I live with that confidence that I'm a good teacher. Until one day I have a kind of uncanny sense that I need to question what it means to be a good teacher. And that's to bring a kind of ironic perspective to my defenses, to my complacencies, and to ask myself again, that is there perhaps a larger, deeper meaning to what I am um, identifying with that I haven't really begun on some level to, fu to fully realize? All this is very, very general. The idea would be to connect with reality, somewhere to find that frozen sea and, and find a way through it. First of all, to recognize that it exists. In my latest book, my argument is that the golden calf, for instance, the, uh, the story of the golden calf, of the, the episode of idolatry that takes place immediately after revelation, Right. The people have had this tremendous revelation at Sinai, and then a mere 40 days later, they are already worshipping uh, an idol, an Egyptian-type idol. The, the materials that I use, the Midrashic materials, suggest that this is not just a temporary digression in the story. Right? There's a sin, and then there's a punishment for the sin, and then they return to, to the main road. Of, of revelation and, and holiness and building the tabernacle and so forth. Rather, the golden calf is of the essence of the story. 
That is, in fact, that it has the irony of the story of Revelation. It's the ironic side that even as they are, the people are receiving this revelation, this, the Torah at Sinai, at the very moment that they're accepting and committing themselves to the Torah, part of their minds is elsewhere. Part of their mind is harking back to a traditional, familiar way of structuring the world that has to do with idolatry, a kind of limited, uh, constricted way of looking at the world. And that fallback is a kind of defense against the overwhelming newness and liberation of what they're being offered at, at the mountain, what they're being offered in, in the revelation. They will never be able to proceed with the revelation unless they have acknowledged, till they have acknowledged the golden calf as something that's essential to them. Not, not a little episode that breaks the smooth surface for a time, but is actually an essential, a movement from the core of their being that is in conflict with the revelation. And then facing that conflict, facing the ambivalences of, of their lives, there is love and there's hate, there's life and there's death. And in later rabbinic thinking and Hasidic thinking, uh, one of the things I find very powerful is, is this notion that reality is a mixture of good and evil. That it can't easily be sliced apart, you know, can't so easily say choose good and not evil. Um, that that's a kind of starting move. But then coming to realize how they're interwoven with each other so that it becomes a, really a kind of psychoanalytic process to try to learn to live well with the complexities and how to give the emphasis in the right place, how to, how to tune things with a, sense, with a sense of God calling one through all these processes. That, that's my form of existential existentialism, but it really is more, it's more Rosenzweig than Buber. It's more, it's more a sense that in the very thick of life, the very, in, in the midst of life, is where God is to be found, because that's where also the dark drives are to be found. That's, a, that's an expression from Rosenzweig, um, a book that I, I have gained a lot from is a book by Eric Zantner called um, Psychotheology of mm -hmm. Everyday Life, The Psychotheology of Everyday Life. And, and there he imagines a conversation between Rosenzweig and Freud. And that in some way has radicalized my thinking to some extent. That has made me see more sharply um, the ways in which uh, the revelation in a way inevitably brings about a kind of whiplash, a, a whiplash movement, a flinch. They flinch away from revelation. The impact is so great that that in a way they have to protect themselves and they swing back to where they came from. And then the question is, how do we find a structure within which God can be housed? That's the, the tabernacle that they have to build. A structure in which, a structure of life, of human life, in which God can meaningfully be housed. 
I love the importance of living with complexity. For me, the elephant in the room, and um, it's related to the, the topic of existentialism, is that Jewish tradition is a legal tradition. And the God who reveals the Torah as a poem to us also has been interpreted by our sages to be a commanding God who reveals the law. And so without presuming what your observance is or your relationship to observance, um, the signal that you put out into the world is as somebody who lives in relationship, not just to the Agadah, the story, which you so beautifully interpret, but also the law. And so is it incidental what, what um, structure we build? Is it, is it relative? Uh, and we just, as long as the house allows us to live with complexity, it will have to do. Or do you think um, that the Jewish legal structure has an advantage in its specificity, in its history, in the way that it's been interpreted um, for allowing us to live with complexity in a way that a non-halachic or non-legal tradition might have a harder time architecting? For me, the, the practices of Judaism, uh, backed by very complex legal discussions, are a source of life. In my personal, in my personal life, uh, I imagine it's partly to do with the associations that I have. Um, there, are, there are associations that I have of beauty and holiness. Uh, I hesitate to use that word again because, in a way, I have a tendency now to, to want to demystify big expressions. So holiness is a very difficult one. I wouldn't like to have to define it. Um, but nevertheless, I'll, I'll use it, that I have associations with Jewish practice, traditional Jewish practice, that is largely beautiful and, 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 and gives me a feeling of holiness and a sense of a path, of a path to walk. And it's a path of both of being loyal to the tradition and practicing it, but also of internalizing it and of making it meaningful uh, increasingly, that is, of, of, of connecting the practices with my inner world. Um, and that, that, that has always been my quest, I would say, that even as life becomes more and more complex and even as if my interests pr proliferate, somewhere the feeling that God is at the center, and as he has been for me uh, all my life, and and the struggles that ensue. And there are struggles. There are things in halacha, there are things in Jewish law that uh, I'm not drawn to, and I don't think most modern people can be drawn to. I struggle with these things, there are many questions. But by and large, I find that way of life um, has, has a, both a grandeur and a particularity. It's, it deals with the specifics of life. Um, the specifics, as if a relationship with God, when you come right down to it, has to do with the ways in which one builds one's own home and the moments of one's experience. Um, as so somewhere for me, the external and the internal, the, the, the effort is to 
to keep them talking to each other. I love that. I probably have a bias towards interiority. I don't know if that's nature or nurture or some combination, um, but I mean, I've spent many years and many hours with my head in books and, and thinking, you know, looking out into space. And um, there's a critique of that from Hegel, uh, a condescending critique of it in, in his phrase, the beautiful soul which is a kind of a retreat from the world of action, from the world of taking a risk to make the world better and instead finding a kind of assurance in oneself and one's thoughts and one's aesthetics. And um, I mean, another word we might use, though Hegel didn't use to describe it, is kind of like quaintness or, or dandyism that maybe that's the tragic flaw of, of the Hamlet type, the, the overthinker. Right, whereas the the tragic flaw of the the person of action, the Napoleon or Hamlet's uh, girlfriend Ophelia, is to rush headlong into action, but with a kind of rashness. So, um, I really like the idea of linking up the internal and the external, and um, I think one challenge and one opportunity that law and observance offers is a way to bring your interiority to something that also has a social function. But with that said as a prelude, um, do you, what are your thoughts on sort of politics as a category? So like when you read the Torah, it's not only about psychology, though it is, um, and it's not only about, let's say, the anguish of, of God and the human being, but it's also the anguish and the opportunity of social life. So do you think that there are any insights that can be drawn out from the Torah in terms of how to make a good society? Or is the psychological turn in your work a kind of way of saying in advance, don't look to society to, <laughs> to offer you the things that you're looking for, you know, except that you're going to be an outsider and, and, and sort of make do with society as a kind of necessary evil. I, I, I know I'm being a little blunt there, but... Mm. I certainly think the Torah aims to affect our social lives and our ethical lives. It is, I think that's a term we haven't used yet. Um, that is ethics as something that is both inward and certainly outward. It's a, we're talking about social, social connection. Um, my feeling is that you can't get easy recipes from the Torah about particular forms of social existence, particular political uh, structures. People argue on on both ends of the scale. There are arguments that the Torah teaches socialism, there are arguments that the Torah teaches the opposite, that it's very sympathetic to capitalism. You can always draw, you know, the devil can quote, quote scripture to suit his own ends. Uh, from my point of view, the devil, I don't know if I should reveal for who, who the devil is for me, um, but I, I'm certainly on the liberal end of the on the, uh, of the spectrum. So I look for signs in the Torah, for, for moments in the Torah itself, and especially in the rabbinical teachings around the Torah. I look for signs, um, indications, again, of the better way to be. It starts often as an individual statement, but it often, of course, deals with society, but more in a 
on an ethical basis rather than prescribing structures, political structures. Um, I don't think that is the primary interest uh, of the Torah. In a way, I think there's a kind of acceptance of the given structures, even, for instance, the structure of slavery. That's, that's a sore point for, for many of us, that the Torah seems to accept slavery as a given and offer ameliorations of the condition of the slave and limitations on how the slave may be treated. But it doesn't actually criticize slavery as an institution. It's clear to me that that offers no excuse for the maintenance of a slave system in our day, so that things have changed and uh, our understandings of Torah have changed and matured. And now we understand things in, in the mode, right? There was a written Torah that was given at the beginning. And since then, we've had an evolving corpus of creative interpretations of Torah, to the oral Torah. And that is really, when it comes right down to it, that's where we, that's where we situate ourselves in that dynamic movement of language, of, of words about the text, um, which means um, moving on through these interpretive strategies, moving on from the basic uh, primal things that are written in the Torah to, to a way of understanding that is somehow coherent with our age and with our ethical sense now. You're an analyst of texts, and you're also somebody with an appreciation for, as you said, the beauty of the text. So when I think of those two, analysis and appreciation, I, I see how they can work in harmony, but I also, just sociologically and experientially, have found that the people who are good at analysis tend to de-emphasize the appreciation and to focus on the mechanics um, or the rational explanation. And the appreciators might have a strong intuitive uh, insight into what's going on, but they lack the sort of conceptual clarity or rigor to articulate why that is the case. And if I'm kind of painting in super broad strokes, I would say, you know, I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is part of this uh, Wiesenschaftes Judentums approach. It's the the analytic approach to Judaism, I, I would say that the training is really much more on the mechanics than on the appreciation of beauty. And when I found myself exposed to traditional learning environments, I found that they lack the rigor that would pass academic muster, but they make up for it with a kind of naive, and I mean that in the best sense, um, appreciation for the beauty. How how do you think about the relationship, let's say, between the analytical and this aesthetic appreciation or the devotional or, you know, something like uh, the vulnerability of the reader when encountering the text? You use the word grandeur. Um, is it a trade-off? Can they be harmonized? And why is it, if you accept my, if you accept my story, why is it that institutions seem to be either one or the other with traditionalism? tending to track towards appreciation and um, rational ones tending to focus more on the critical, but maybe forgetting this, the, the beautiful in the process. 
Personally, I'm an appreciator, I think. Start, start with biography, um, autobiography. Uh, I've always known that to an extreme. And at the same time, I have a mind. <laughs> what can I do? <laughs> so the mind would ask questions. And I did, in the end, I did get a doctorate from Cambridge in English literature. But I, I found already at that stage that the two are not, don't have to be in conflict. But it depends what you mean by analytical. I think there are some ways of being analytical in the academy now that are really very divorced from any kind of emotional resonance. It's a, it becomes a jargon of its own. It's separated from normal, from, from emotional responses. Be that as it may, um, I think also since the Jewish Theological Seminary's heyday, um, there have been many institutions that have opened up and I've had the privilege of meeting and teaching students at some of these other institutions for young people who are attracted towards Judaism, towards study and observance of Judaism. They're not orthodox, but they are somewhere uh, non-denominational, but they are based on enthusiasm, love and analysis on understanding the text and may not be academic analysis, but it's analysis in terms of, in, in literary terms in which I was educated, which has to do very much with sensitivity, listening to the words, noticing themes, noticing key, key motifs. I don't think perforce you have to distance yourself from the text in order to present, present a, an interpretation of it that has a truth to it, as well as a sense of its beauty um, and of the inspirational uh, quality that it has, the warmth of the text. I, th I talk about grandeur in scripture. There are certain books you know, that, that really strike one with a sense, among other things, of grandeur, like the book of Job, for instance, the end of, of the book of Job. And then there are many other words one can use to describe the quality and the and the and the flavor of the experience of different books of, of the Bible. Beauty, I think, is not ignored. In in certainly in some of the worlds that I am familiar with now, the places where I teach, beauty and enthusiasm and deep identification with with the aesthetic, somewhere with simply with the aesthetic uh, call of the text and the way that is used in order to make the, make its message come across more clearly. So I, I would hesitate to make such a clear distinction between those two models now, thinking of the of the students that I know now and have had the the privilege to to be quite close to. Okay, that's very beautiful and heartening to hear. Another distinction that I like to throw into the mix of the conversation here is that between Midrash and Pshat. So for the listeners uh, who don't speak Hebrew or are less familiar with this genre of commentary, I would summarize, and, and um, Aviva, you can, you can add or correct me on this, but I would say that Midrash responds to enchantment with enchantment, 
And Pshat responds to enchantment with the desire to demystify. So historically, Pshat is, you know, whether you 11th century or 12th century, it's a kind of, it's a first step towards modern reading in that the goal is to understand the contextual or the plain meaning of the text rather than to sort of insert oneself into the text or interpolate it. And um, when you use Midrash and Pshat, it seems to me like you use them somewhat interchangeably to reflect on this human condition, this anguish human condition, and, and to show that sort of even a rational approach from Ibn Ezra, for example, can still have psychological insight in it. But experientially, it seems very different um, to, let's say, explain the story of Cain and Abel um, using a midrashic retelling of it in which, you know, they're fighting over where the temple in Jerusalem is going to be built um, versus uh, a pshat approach that's focused, let's say, on like to take Rashi that that one of the brothers was carrying on the family business of farming and the other was uh, an innovator. And so uh, and so he could offer wool because he departed from the from the family business. They, they both seem to have a psychological force to them, but one seems kind of fantastical and to defy basic <laughs> appreciation of physics or something, it's like almost sci-fi, and the other still operates within the world of common understanding. So I don't know, what are your thoughts on this sort of midrash shot split? Are they more continuous or less continuous than we think? And is there a way in which archetypally you think some places or some people are more drawn to the one and others to the other. I think it's certainly true that some people are more drawn to one and, and others to the other. Um, I think Bialik had a, a famous essay on the subject. Uh, Midrash is not only fantastical. The Midrashic sources that I deal with, and they are mainline Midrashic sources, if you could say that, are in some ways very down-to-earth very prosaic, they use analogies, they use parables, but they're analyzable. And that's what I try to do. I try to understand the fine points of these narratives, these, these, these interpretive narratives, which often broaden the point of that is made in the Bible and try to link it to very large concerns. So I think often what you have in Midrash um, is an attempt to detect the resonances within the pshat. That actually, if you listen better to the text of, of the Torah, then you can hear what the Midrash is trying to draw out. It would be good if I had a, if I had a good example handy. Let's say, all right, since this, this is something that I, I was writing about recently in my, my last book, let's say, when the tabernacle is inaugurated, Moses tells Aaron, go close to the altar, krav el hamizbeach, which means start your work of sacrifices, start the rituals going, right? So go there and offer sacrifices, krav, korbanot, sacrifices, the words are linked with each other. So it's a kind of technical instruction that Moses is giving Aaron. That would, would be what you're calling the pshat of the, of the meaning. 
Midrash says something really quite fantastical in this case, I, even I will agree, um, and that is that Krav implies that Aaron has to overcome the terror he feels at getting close to the altar, which he suddenly hallucinates as being looking like a calf, looking like the golden calf. The horns of the altar, the corners of the altar look like horns suddenly to him. There's an act of imagination here. It's an act, actually, it's an act of terrified fantasy, which suggests that he is afraid and ashamed because of the golden calf story in which he has been complicit. Because of that, and recognizing that in some way he is part of the national uh, regression uh, to Egypt, the altar now takes on something of the fearfulness and of the slippage that's involved in with the golden calf. And so out there, there is his inner life. He looks out there at the place of holiness, that he's supposed where he's where he's supposed to operate. That's that's where where he's supposed to do his his sacred work, and the sacred work is blocked by his guilt and his memories and his associations. Now, that's a, a profoundly psychoanalytic um, image, it seems to me. And in a way, the idea would be to acknowledge that that deep sense of guilt and of not being qualified by one's own history to undertake this enterprise. Um, and at the same time, based on a, on a, on a self-knowledge of this kind that can have a moment, a really traumatic moment of recognition in it, to deepen his understanding of what his role will be in the future. That is, that his role somewhere has to take that into account, has to take that slippage into account as part of the inner story, the inward story of a human being. Um, and it may be that one can't go anywhere high unless one engages with these, with these dark drives, as, uh, as Rosenzweig puts it. I think the midrash is the unconscious of the text. You know, if I want to use psychoanalytic uh, structures that it it goes into certain deep and dark places. Not all of them are dark, but all of them are are deep, which means in some way not perceptible at once, well, not manifest. They take some analysis. They take some breaking of the ice. I love the idea that midrash is the unconscious of the text. That's a a beautiful formulation, and. Um, one thing that I come up against sometimes, because I, I personally super drawn to Midrash, both the, the tradition and also the way of thinking in this kind of unconscious and associative way, is the problem of authority. So I think um, in the more traditional world, you might be you, you can quote a Midrash to make a point because it's part of the canon. But if you don't have a Midrash to back you up, you can't really go off and, and offer an unconscious interpretation. You can't interpret the unconscious of the Torah sort of on your own. I think um, like in a traditional formulation, the unconscious of the text is something that you would only be able to know, let's say, because it's passed on through tradition. There's a kind of uh, Masora kind of um, 
oral telling whereby these sort of these secondary stories live whereas Pshat seems to rely less upon this idea of authority less of um an appeal to tradition and more the idea that almost like a anticipating new criticism that you can just encounter the text on its own and using uh the language itself you can be guided to what's going on i i don't know um I think the qu- the question is in that is sort of how free do you feel as an interpreter to free associate versus bound bound by what's been said before uh, is is the text open to hypotheses about its unconscious or is there some kind of guardrail that we can say Aaron feels guilt only because it's implied by this canonical source, but otherwise it would be kind of heretical, if you will, to, to say such a thing. I don't think we are limited to the Midrash in our readings of the text. I think many people do. Many contemporary Orthodox readers of the text will simply look very closely at the text. Um, intertextuality is very big. That is, realizing how words echo and resonate with previous uses of the same word. And that often leads one in a psychoanalytic direction, that the unconscious is in some way being revealed uh, at these moments where characters are using words that have been used in a different context before to indicate to us that there's more going on here than, uh, you know, this is so common I, I think I probably do something a little bit different from from, from some forms of that. I'm trying to think of an example. All right, right at the end of, of, of the book of Genesis, the brothers, the father dies, Jacob dies, and the brothers confront their brother, Joseph, under a new condition. It's in a new condition of things that the father is no longer there to protect them. Uh, from Joseph's revenge for the way they treated him all those years ago. And, and what they say to one another is, Lu yustameno Yosef. What if Joseph now unveils his hatred, really looses his hatred upon us, and we are now going to pay for that old story? That's what the text says. But the word that's used in Hebrew is Lu. Lu yustameno. Lu means what if, it's translated what if. But as Rashi points out, Rashi does a psychoanalytic uh, interpretation. Lu doesn't usually mean something you're afraid of. It's not what if, what if means oi. <laughs> now, now Joseph is free to take revenge now that father is no longer here. But the word Lu is never used like that. The word Lu is always used to describe something you wish would happen. It's an expression of wishfulness or at the least of something neutral. What if, you know, purely theoretical, speculative, what if, but never something that you dread. So why do they use the word Lou? And that leads to a suggestion that's made actually by a 19th century commentary, but I, I I would have made the same suggestion, I have to say. And I would have felt quite free to to make it. And that is that there's a kind of hidden wish. There's an unconscious wish in their their feeling at this moment. Of course, they dread 
the hatred, the revenge of Joseph consciously, but something in them wants resolution of the past. Something in them knows that you can't disturb, you can't disturb the, the equilibrium of things as they have done with their brother, you know, that, that act against their brother selling him into slavery, without something to pay for it. Somewhere at some time in the future, there'll be a terrible revenge. And they want in some way to meet reality. Something in them wants to meet reality and to have what they've done acknowledged while it's, while it's still relatively local within the family. And it won't have to be dealt with sometime into the, in the future where it may be terribly, terribly exacerbated. Um, and of that suggestion, um, and that's from an orthodox, it's an orthodox um, commentary, uh, I espouse very thoroughly because the word, it's true, the word Lu is not used in negative contexts. So there's something positive here that's hiding underneath the negative, underneath the fear. Um, it's a hidden wish, which is exactly the kind of ambivalence, kind of you know, the kind of ambivalence that uh, that it seems to me that one might feel in such a situation. That's a beautiful example, and whenever I encounter such examples, it really does give me this sense of um, awe at how <laughs> insanely uh, layered the Torah is, how intricately woven. It's like such a masterpiece. And even saying that is a kind of, I think, belittling of what it is. And, um, you know, people people debate, especially moderns, you know, it, is the Torah authored by God? Is it authored by humans? Can it be both? Whenever I encounter examples like that, where the language so tightly expresses something, some psychological truth in a way that it would it would take a modern to paraphrase, but it's already right there and so succinctly. It 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 makes me feel like there has to be something divine about the text. So oh, you know what whatever that even means. Um, do you have sort of thoughts on the authorship of the Torah? And I don't mean that his you know historically speaking, but just in terms of like the kind of mind or spirit that animates it as a as someone trained in psychoanalysis uh at least that you know in your in your approach like what is your read <laughs> your psychological read of the author or uh or of of the torah and i just to add on to that question like god is the presumed author even though nowhere in the book itself does it does it say you know here's the introduction i'm god here's something about me here's my cv and now i'm telling you that i'm writing this thing uh there's no blurb it's just this thing without context in the beginning god said and in there god is introduced as a character in the third person it's kind of it'd be kind of weird for god to write about god's self in the third person so in addition to that question is also the question of like what do you make of the author, what do you make of the character God? How do you relate those two to one another? And then I think there's a third term, which is um, not God as the character, but God as such. So like Maimonides reads about God, the character, having all these anthropomorphic qualities, emotion, you know, hands, body parts, whatever. He's embarrassed by that. And he's like, nah, you can't, you don't read the Bible and, you know, as telling you anything about God as such, like know what God as such is and then read the Bible accordingly. So I'm sure you have thoughts about kind of how 
the biblical portrayal of God interrelates to the metaphysical or, or some other conception of God as such? Uh, um, yes, I, I do have thoughts, but I don't have a, a kind of systematic way of answering the question succinctly. One thing I certainly identify with is what you said before about uh, the, there's something about the text that gives me a sense that the divine is involved in the creation of it. And my, my, my experience of its being divine is that. It is on the level of experience, it's the, simply the treasures that I found within the text, largely unearthed by the rabbis, who unearthed by me, you know, in other words, later interpreters through the generations have, have interpreted previous, previous uh, versions. And if we are, if we manage to remain close to the text through all that, and I think we are really discovering things about the text. We're discovering depths and riches in the text that were not so much available perhaps in, in the past. Um, and that, it seems to me, is, is the divine nature, the, the sort of infinitely containing Torah. Torah, turn it over and turn it over, because everything is in it. Well, if you keep turning, you'll find everything in it. You, know, you, can't, you can't do it by skating over the surface. You won't find anything in it but what's on the surface. Um, so there is some kind of excavation that, that has to take place, which has always been felt to be God's work. I mean, people who are, are scholars of Torah, Tamidei Chachamim, are our nearest approximation to, to tzaddikim, really, although there is a difference, to, 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 to saints. This is what a person should be doing, a person who wants to be close to God, work with the Torah, Turn it over and turn it over. And then your life somehow will be affected by the process, by, by, by the work on, on the Torah, the play work with, with the Torah. Your, your Torah is my Sha'ashua, the, the psalmist says. If, you're, if, you're, if your Torah had not been my Sha'ashua, I should long ago have perished in my affliction. So all that is God's work traditionally viewed. So where is God in all this? Um, I, I identify also with what you said about the author and the narrator. And it was two separate, two separate beings, right? The, the, uh, the author is creating a narrator, right? It's Joseph Conrad uh, writing a, a novel in which there is a narrator, you know, a central speaker through whose consciousness, to some extent, we see the action. Um, and, and there is that distinction. And then there is God the character. Those are the three levels that I... That God the character, there are many things to say about God the character. Yes, it's, it's, it's rich material, anthropomorphic material, prosaic material, the idea of, for instance, particularly perhaps shocking, uh, surprising, subversive example is a midrash that talks about the relationship between God and his people as like a king and his underwear. I don't know if this is, this is something we can take on. That is the intimacy with which God wants his people to 
be close to him. Do they put? What is it with my underwear? It's close to my body. Now, you can't get more anthropomorphic than that. And that is, it's a way of talking about the intimacy and prosaic, right? In, in, in the prosaic details of life, that the Jewish people are celebrated for living with God. That is not as a kind of God, a, a, a Sunday God, a Sabbath God, but a God who is there in the in the in the nitty gritty, in the very in the very details, prosaic details of life, um, and that the people become in some way there's a prosaic level in their existence which is regarded as holy. Um, the prosaicness of Jewish existence is something that sometimes troubles me. It's something that uh, it, it's it's not highfalutin. It's very down to earth. Um, sometimes I could do it with being with it being a little more elevated. Um, but that that's there's something very Jewish about it. Right? The very sound of Yiddish. It's, it's the very nature of the Yiddish language. There's a hominess about it. But all this is getting a bit far away from God as God. But that is the God, on at least one level, that is the God who is given to us through the law and through the work with the law and through the narratives of the Torah where God is anthropomorphized, where prayer becomes a kind of one-sided conversation with God, but with a sense of the presence of the other, um, the intimate presence of the other. It's always seemed to me that um, for that kind of God, you need uh, a learner, you need a, you need a student of the Torah who has imagination. Mm. But there has to be a kind, without imagination, how do you do it altogether? That it's not, these are not literal terms. That these are terms that they have a poetic valence to them. And with, with, with imagination, there's a, there's a form of spiritual imagination that is required seems to me in 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 thinking and imagining God and trying and a knowledge and a kind of humility about it that I don't begin to chip at the edges you know that, that God is much more than this but he is also this in the midst of life mm. I like the idea of God is more than this um, because often in, in sort of more theological and philosophical debates it, it the, the arguments tend to be zero-sum like either God is this or God is this, but the idea that sort of God can exceed language and thought and yet also be available poetically and mythologically through our uh, abundance of images and um, metaphors is a nice is a nice way to square the circle there. Like the fact that God can <laughs> represent God's self as needing, uh, needing us to be God's underwear doesn't take away from, you know, the thousand other stories we could tell about God, for instance, the the Talmudic text in Brachot about God cooing like a a dove in in a cave, uh, bemoaning bemoaning the the children that God's self has <laughs> exiled. So, my final question is about building culture and making these insights available to people because I. I think there's so much here that would really enrich people's lives and enrich the lives of Jewish people. Currently, there's a need and a desire, but I don't think it's being fully met. 
And there were two things that you said that I just want to reiterate here. One was the sort of the universal imperative to live with complexity and to create shelters or spaces that allow us to live with complexity. And the other was something you just more recently said about the idea of the Tami Chacham, the scholar, um, the wise learner being a kind of saint, being a tzaddik, being, being an achievement. And so when I think of Tamidei Chachamim, of these saintly scholars, it's not the most populist image, even though theoretically anybody could be a, could be a sage. It seems like for reasons of access or reasons of temperament, reasons of talent or training, very few um, relative to the general population achieve the saintliness. Um, but this living with complexity does seem to be something that maybe we can all do more of whether or not, you know, no matter how much Torah we've studied or, or can make time to study in our lifetime. So what's your sort of theory of change or your call to action or your hope for the general populace in terms of increasing uh, their openness, our openness to trauma and to complexity and to big insider outsiders. And then what is the, what is the hope for the sages in our communities to allow them to encounter the Torah in a way that goes beyond just the mental and allows them to experience the text as this ax that breaks the frozen sea in their hearts. When I, when I open up your Moses and I see the quote from Kafka, it feels very natural to me. It feels somewhat utopian as well, because um, it's, a, it's a kind of bringing Kafka back into the fold in a way, um, a kind of reclaiming of Kafka, um, that Kafka for himself had, a, I guess, a more contentious relationship to. So I, I don't know, there's something in this idea of like bringing Kafka or those kinds of people back into yeshiva that that is in my question about the the offering for the sages and and some something about learning from these excluded voices or these pre these previously self excluded voices that maybe they have something to treat to teach the world or to enhance the world of Torah learning that's just you know straight Torah but but less exposed to let's say the humanistic and secular influences. I don't have a grand scheme for um, renewing culture. I feel very limited in doing the things that I do. That, that's really all I can claim to do. In, in the kind of teaching I do, the people who listen to me, a number of people recently have been talking to me about just their, their anxiety about their legacy, what they will leave over in the world. People of my age, um, and for some reason, I, I recoil from that kind of question. What will my legacy be? What, what, what kind of world would I like to leave behind me? I don't think I have any power um, to create a legacy. I think the legacy is what it is. That by doing each person, by doing his or her work in the world and work with Torah and I mean, everyone in their field will make an impact and hopefully the people who are in the direction that we're talking about uh, will make some impact on, on the world. I, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic about it when I look at what's happening. 
Um, but I do believe, again, that um, more than what more than what seems obvious is possible. That there are surprises that happen. There are swings that happen in culture, and a culture that seems to be going very much in the, in the opposite direction um, may, at some point, uh, swing around on itself and move again to a more broad humanistic emphasis, which there was in the past. Particular, the particular take on that that I've uh, contributed, perhaps, is is something that maybe is picked up by a few other people, and then perhaps they will go on to to affect larger numbers. I, I can only put it really in a very uh, on a very modest <laughs> level. There's there's no knowing. There's no knowing. I think what shapes culture. I, I don't. I don't know how much one can consciously shape a plan for changing culture. I appreciate the humility. It um, also reminds me of sort of a, a conflict in moral philosophy between the utilitarians who think that they can sort of design society to optimize for well-being and the, um, the virtue ethicists, if you will. Um, I, I see the virtue ethics continuing in um, in Adorno, in Heidegger, in Levinas, in, in sort of certain critics of what they call instrumental rationality, which is the idea that you can use human reason to kind of get to the desired outcome. And instead, they sort of say that that in and of itself is leading to the cultural problems and that we need to just be more open and more faithful and kind of accept the otherness, the alterity uh, of life and not be so controlling and that that in and of itself will bring the flourishing that we're after. I, I have mixed feelings about it because I, I think experientially I agree with this critique of utilitarianism and it, it seems more natural to my spirituality and, and my religious uh, understanding. But um, when I think of the changes in medical care, dental care, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and how so many have been brought out of poverty by industrialization, it's, it's hard um, not to feel small relative to the utilitarians. But maybe there's a, um, a higher synthesis, which is, as you say, the sense that the there can be impact, and we should we should allow for that possibility, but also not think that we can have the last word on it, especially when it comes to the final things like our own mortality. Yes, yes, I think that's that, that was a beautiful way of of giving me back what I was was trying to say. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time and for the work that you do. And on a personal note, it has really touched my soul and, and it will be a North Star for me for many years. Thank you. I find it very touching that someone like you has, has gained from my work. I've enjoyed the conversation. It was a real conversation. And so I thank you too. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. 
You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.